You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Well, we are almost eight months into this pandemic, uh, and while it has been interesting at times uh, and certainly eye-opening for many, I think that we can all agree that we are ready for this thing to be over. Uh, and I think the, the, the question that we're all, all asking, I think the thing that we are all longing for uh, is when are things going to return to normal, right? Uh, like, uh, when are all of my favorite places around town going to start opening and operating at full capacity again? Uh, when am I going to be able to have parties uh, at my home again without worrying that my neighbors are judging me? Uh, when uh, can I start... Uh, hanging out with my parents and my grandparents without worrying for their uh, safety and for their health? Uh, When am I going to be able to take a trip uh, and not have to quarantine afterwards? When are we going to be able to gather as a church again every single Sunday? When am I going to be able to drop my kids off at childcare? Right, parents? When are things going to be uh, returning to normal? This is what we all uh, want. Uh, But I had a a, a thought this week, a a question that I've been mulling over. Uh, What if God doesn't want me to return to my normal? Maybe you've had some kind of a similar thought. What if my normal, uh, the life that I have come uh, to expect and be accustomed to, the norms uh, that I can reasonably expect in my life, what if this isn't the normal that God wants for me. I find that so much of our lives are characterized uh, on the one hand by uh, a constant sense of of, of striving and earning, right? We're we're constantly trying to to prove ourselves and to get ahead, to to, to make our own way in this life. And, And on the other hand, our lives are also characterized by comfort and neglect. We're constantly trying to entertain ourselves and and make life easier and and not be too tied down to any one thing. Uh, If life has been hard for you, uh, maybe you feel beat down to the point of feeling fearful or insecure. On the other hand, if life has been going pretty well for you, then you might have the exact opposite problem. You may be too enamored with life in this world to the point of feeling uh, prideful. Or, or arrogant. But whatever normal life consists of for you, uh, through his word and spirit, I think God wants to call us today to a new normal. And so as we look at this uh, really memorable and, and familiar passage here in Galatians 5, I want us to consider three things uh, about the normal life that God wants for us. Uh, first off, what is it? Uh, what is this new normal? Secondly, what threatens it? Uh, And then finally, how do we get it? Okay? Uh, What is it? What threatens it? uh, And how do we get it? So if you you, uh, haven't already, go ahead and open up to Galatians 5. Galatians 5. uh, and, And look there at verses 22 and 23. This is probably the most familiar, most famous part Uh, of this passage, Uh, but look there at verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit 
is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Paul here in Galatians 5 uses agricultural language, right? And he's doing so for a specific reason, I think. A fruit tree naturally produces a certain kind of fruit, right? Like an apple tree, for example, produces apples, right? That's what it does. That's its normal. And likewise, for those that are in Christ, this is now our new normal, Verses 22 and 23, this is the life that God wants for us. And and more than that, this is the life that God has promised to us, the life he has given us in his son, a life marked by the fruit of the spirit. Now, hopefully you noticed that uh, though there are nine character qualities listed here, Paul does not call them the fruits, plural, right? Which is sometimes I think how we think about them. He calls them the fruit, singular, uh, of the Spirit. And and the fact that they are referred to as the fruit of the Spirit uh, tells us that these nine character qualities are are, are actually, they're one whole piece, right? They're they're intimately connected. You can't have one of them without the others. Uh, The analogy that is often used uh, to describe this is, is that of a diamond, Right, Paul's not talking about nine separate diamonds uh, on a bracelet. Right, he's talking about one glorious diamond that, w- that when you hold it up to the light, right, you begin to see all the different hues and colors. Right, you, be- you begin to see the various aspects of the, the holistic beauty uh, of the diamond. Now, our tendency is to want to uh, look at these character qualities uh, one at a time to maybe give ourselves a score, a ranking on each of them, and then to sort of add them all up, right? Take a cumulative score and see how we're doing in this spirit-filled life. But I want you to notice that that's not Paul's intention here, right? This list is to be taken together, right? It's one one interconnected picture of the spirit-filled life. And and here's the danger in, in viewing these separately, Uh, Separating the fruit of the Spirit, I think, leads to a deceptive view of ourselves. Uh, And and here's what I mean by that. Uh, When you look at this list of the uh, the fruit, uh, you probably identified uh, that that you're somewhat stronger in maybe some of them than in others, right? Uh, But quite often, those strengths are not necessarily evidence uh, of the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, A lot of times what our culture calls character actually has more to do with with our personality and our upbringing. And and so if we look at these uh, fruit individually, uh, we are prone to deceive ourselves into thinking that we are doing far better than we actually are. For example, some people are just temperamentally gentle. But oftentimes, this, this natural gentleness is accompanied by, by a lack of courage and boldness. And so while these people might be slow to speak, they're also slow to speak the truth. They're slow to confront when it's needed, which in the end does not produce love. It only deepens the conflict. 
Some people are incredibly self-controlled, just like naturally on their own. But the telltale sign that this is not the Spirit's fruit is that such people are often secretly proud of their restraint and dedication. And therefore, they often tend to be less patient with people who are less disciplined as them. Have you seen that? Some people tend to be just naturally cheerful, right? Do you know the people I'm talking about? Super extroverted, happy all the time, great at meeting new people. It's wonderful. I love these people. But if your joy gets exposed when circumstances or people turn against you, it might just be that you have a bubbly personality, You see, the danger of viewing this list separately, uh, taking these as nine individual character traits, uh, is that it can can lead to relying on counterfeit fruit in our lives. Uh, The truth is that anyone can produce acts of kindness in their lives, can't they? Anyone can care about and work for peace in this world. It doesn't take the spirit of God to do that. All of that is, it's fairly common, it's normal. So remember, right, God is calling us to a new normal here. The fruit described here in Galatians 5, it's not just something that we naturally have. It's a result of the supernatural work of the spirit in our lives. And so don't, uh, don't separate these character qualities uh, in your mind uh, because that will, that will lead to relying on your own natural strengths and it will, it will short circuit uh, the deeper work uh, of growth and transformation that God wants to do. Uh, I think a far better uh, but, but far more convicting test uh, is to look through this list and, and to pick the one that you're weakest in. Pick the one that you're weakest in. If these things are interconnected, right, if they're to be taken as one whole piece, then find the one that you're weakest in. Because in the same way that a chain is only as strong as its weakest link, right, we are only as strong as our weakest fruit. Now, on the surface, right when I said that, that might be a little discouraging, I don't know about you, but I look at this list and it's hard to pick just one that I'm weakest in because depending on the day, I feel like I'm pretty weak in all nine. Does anybody else feel that? Just me, huh? Why is that? Why Why is that? If this is our new normal, if this is the life that God wants for us, then why do we struggle to experience it? Well, uh, earlier in in the chapter, uh, Paul says it's because there's something that that threatens the Spirit's work in our lives. Uh, Look at verse 17. Verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So Paul is saying here that the threat that we all experience is a threat that comes from within. It's the desires of the flesh, Paul says, that keep us from doing what we want to do. 
Right? It's, it's the desires of the flesh which are diametrically opposed to the desires of the spirit that keep us from living the new normal that God wants for us. Now, when, when Paul uses the word flesh, as he often does in the New Testament, he's not talking about our physical bodies. Right? The, the fundamental problem is not a physical material problem here. Paul is referring here to our sinful nature. That's what he means by flesh. Uh, And the word translated desires here means uh, to set your heart upon, uh, to covet, to to lust after. And so these desires are are desires that get turned in on self. And, and, And opposed to using our freedom to love and serve others, as Paul mentions in verse 13, uh, the desires of the flesh are all about loving and serving ourselves. Uh, And and we see that at play uh, in the works of the flesh that Paul goes on to list here. Uh, And I'm not gonna go through them all. Uh, Rather, I I wanna draw your attention to the eight things that Paul mentions there uh, in the middle of this list because I think that these eight things are by far uh, the most uh, prevalent manifestation of what it looks like for us to live uh, in the flesh. Uh, They're listed there uh, in verse 20. Verse 20, starting with with, uh, the word enmity, right? So the works of the flesh are enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. Now, uh, what ties those eight descriptors together is that they all have to do with relationships, with how we relate and treat one another. And, And I want you to notice what's not on that list. Uh, Things like murder, abuse, exploitation, racism. The kinds of things that make the nightly news are not listed here, right? And and instead, Paul mentions things like strife and dissension, envy and anger, right? Things that are in every home and in every workplace. Right? These are the result of just the normal ways that we seek to serve ourselves in relationships. Right? And make no mistake, they are evil and sinful and destructive. The problem is, is that we just get so used to living with them that we lose sight of just how truly toxic they are. It's also interesting that these eight relational words mentioned here, they're symptoms and not choices. Right, meaning no one, no one sets out to be envious. Right, no one just wakes up on any given day and says, you know, I think at about noon today, I'm gonna have a fit of anger. Right, no one does that. Right, these aren't choices that we make, rather these are symptoms of allowing your flesh to have its way in you. Right, and in our fleshly nature, this This is just a picture of what's normal in relationships. Gossip and judging others. It's just so commonplace. We just become conditioned to it. It's just, it's not that big of a deal. Comparing yourself to others, trying trying to prove yourself, trying to get a leg up on everyone else. Anger, division, unforgiveness. It's just everywhere we turn these days. 
It's all so common. It just doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Right? We, we become blind to it. We, we sort of let our guard down and complacency starts to set in. And therein lies the great threat. Right? Complacency towards sin is perhaps the greatest threat to the spirit-filled life. Uh, in his great book, uh, The Screwtape Letters, uh, C.S. Lewis writes from the perspective, uh, essentially, of Satan, right? And, and he writes about uh, the mindset and the strategies uh, that Satan employs. Uh, and this is what one of uh, Satan's demons uh, says about the strategy uh, of our enemy. He says, some humans are lukewarm and complacent. And in that case, it is our business to soothe them faster asleep. He goes on to say, indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Do you see the danger? Complacency towards sin, complacency towards the desires of the flesh is deadly serious, deadly serious. And, and if you think that I'm just being dramatic here, if you think I'm, I'm over-inflating uh, things just to make a point, right, I, I want you to see uh, what Paul says at the end of verse 21 about the seriousness uh, of this threat. Look at, the, look at the second half there of verse 21. He says, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He doesn't simply say, come on, you can, you can do better than that. Right? He doesn't say, you know, no one, no one likes a hypocrite. No, he says, I warn you, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so uh, despite the fact that these works of the flesh might seem all too normal for us, like, like they're no big deal, right? Paul says very clearly, these are deadly serious. Uh, now I want you to hear me. Uh, here at the second half of verse 21, Paul is not trying to rob you of your assurance of salvation. But he is trying to warn you about your complacency. We all struggle with the flesh, right? Paul knows this better than, better than anyone. And so he's not talking here about periodic lapses of sin. There will be times for us all when we have fits of anger, impure desires. What makes all the difference and is so telling is the, is the trajectory of your life over time. And what is also so telling is how we respond internally when these things, envy, strife, selfish ambition, flares up in your heart. According to this passage, the Christian life is characterized by a struggle, by a war against our flesh. And so look, if you don't feel any struggle if you don't have any sense of, of opposition against sin in your life, then it might be that you do not have the desires of the spirit within you. And you would be wise to heed Paul's warning. If the spirit is not in you, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
but I want you to hear me. I want you to listen uh, to the wonderful news of the gospel, right? Christ Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law. He redeemed us from the desires and works of the flesh by what? Becoming a curse for us so that in Christ Jesus, we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The works of the flesh are toxic and lethal. They lead to death. But the good news of the gospel is that the death fell on Jesus. And because it fell on Jesus, we are now able to receive the promise and power and presence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And for those that are in Christ, we have a new, wonderful, glorious normal to live into, a life marked by the fruit of the Spirit. But as we've just seen, we also experience a great threat, right? which is the desires of the sinful flesh. And these desires desperately want to keep us from living that spirit-filled life. Right? And so what do we do? Like, how do we, how do we get this spirit-filled life? Well, I want you to notice, I want you to see the commands that are sprinkled throughout this passage. Did you notice them? In verse 16, and he says, walk by the Spirit. In verse 18, he says, if you are led by the Spirit. In verse 25, he says, if we live by the Spirit, then also keep in step with the Spirit. Do you hear the overwhelming emphasis in each of those commands? What are they all focused on? They're not focused on our flesh, the thing that's causing the problem. They're all focused on the Spirit the solution and power to work through the problem. Now, do you know how to get air out of a glass? It's not by sucking out the air. Right? It's by filling it with water. The way that we overcome the desires of the flesh is to be, to be filled up, right? to, to walk, to be led by, to live by, to keep in step with the Spirit of God. Thomas Chalmers was a Scottish minister and theologian during the 19th century, and he's probably most well-known for a book that he wrote called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And in the book, Chalmers seeks to answer a really fundamental question. How do we overcome the desires of the flesh? The problem isn't just that we sin, it's that we desire to sin. And so how do we overcome at the level of our desires? That's what this book is all about. And Chalmers says that there are two main ways of trying to do this. He says one way is to show that those desires, right, a love of self, that those desires ultimately won't satisfy, right? that in the end they're going to let you down. And the other way is to show that, that an opposing desire, that a, that a love for God is vastly more worthy, more satisfying. And, and this is the, the ultimate conclusion that Chalmers comes to in his book. He says, the latter method alone will suffice for the rescue and recovery of the heart from the wrong affection that domineers it. Do you hear what he's saying? Right, the only way to crucify the flesh and its desires is to cultivate a desire for something far greater. And I think this is exactly what Paul is getting at in this passage. If we want to experience victory over the flesh, if we want to live a life 
filled with the fruit of the Spirit. The way to get there, the path, Paul says, is to cultivate desire for the Spirit of God. Because, because here's what the Spirit does in our lives. In, in John 16, Jesus told us what the mission of the Holy Spirit is. He said, he, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me. Right? In other words, uh, the Spirit is sent to make Christ real to people and to show us who Jesus really is in his glory, right? So that we might come to love him and trust him and obey him and display his beauty and glory to the world. The Holy Spirit leads us to the beauty and worth of Jesus, right? The, the expulsive power of a new affection, this is how we experience the Spirit-filled life. There are so many points of application from this text, really important things, uh, like uh, the need to put sin to death in our lives and how we go about doing that practically uh, and, and how we can uh, em employ God's means of grace in our lives to help us uh, walk by the Spirit. And I hope that you talk about all of those things this week in your gospel communities. Uh, but I just want to draw your attention to one thing. Uh, look at verse 24. Verse 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Those who are in Christ Jesus belong to him. I just, I just want that to sink in. If you are a follower of Jesus, then you belong to Christ. I want you to try something this week. Every morning when you get up this week, spend some time reminding yourself of verse 24, that you belong to Jesus. Every day this week when you get up, it doesn't have to be long, just a few minutes, and then pick two other times throughout your day to stop and do the same. Right, set a reminder on your phone uh, if you need to, but take three moments throughout your day, each day this week, to stop and pray and remind yourself that you belong to Jesus. Because here's what I think. The degree to which we know and believe that we belong to Jesus is the degree to which we will experience the normalcy of the spirit-filled life. If you belong to Christ Jesus, then you now have a new normal. Right? You, you, you don't have to get caught up in envy and strife and rivalry and self-pity because union with Christ means that your approval rests on his record and not your own. Right? Union with Christ means that, you, that everything that belongs to Jesus now belongs to you. Right? On the cross, Jesus took the full penalty of our fleshly nature on himself once and for all. And in exchange, he gives you his righteousness, his beauty, his character. And he gives you his very life, his power through the spirit which now lives inside of you. Right? How do we walk by the spirit? Right? It starts here, union with Christ. You belong to Jesus. That is the good news of the gospel. The Heidelberg Catechism 
The very first question, do you know what it is? What is your only comfort in life and in death? Uh, and, and the answer, that I am not my own. But we belong body and soul and life and in death to our faithful savior, Jesus Christ. This is where the Christian life starts and this is the path, the journey. We belong to Jesus. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.